0: Nevertheless, she persisted. Rarely does the gospel reading set up a statement that has so thoroughly invaded the popular conscience of today. Now in a few years, this infamous exclamation by a certain Senate Majority Leader about a certain Massachusetts Senator will probably have faded from our collective memories. But today, boy, does this fit the widow in today's parable. Nevertheless, she persisted. We have this perseverant widow who just won't stop bothering the judge. He's proudly unchurched, doesn't care for God, doesn't care for people, and yet he still does the right thing in spite of that. And he gives her the justice she deserves. Not because he's beholden to any kind of ethical standard. That's made clear. But because she's persistent. Because she's bugging the heck out of now it's worth pointing out that this widow, that a widow is, is the iconic biblical symbol of anyone who's oppressed or powerless or the outsider. And it's, it's worth pointing out that she is given such power in this parable. She literally upends the, so, the justice system and makes the judge do her bidding. It kind of makes you want to say, you go girl. It's a lesson to all of us of the power of perseverance in the face of injustice. Just keep at it, just keep doing it. It's also easy to overlook the third character in this short parable, it's the widow's opponent. He, because it probably was a he, has done her wrong and she demands justice, which means she demands retribution. She wants her opponent taken down. Then Jesus indicates the purpose of this parable. Will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? In the context of the parable, this justice is retribution. Jesus is telling his listeners that God will punish their oppressors. God will make it right for his chosen ones. Now, we Episcopalians like to think of our God as a God of love. But here we have what might be called a God of retribution, a God that gets back at our enemies, our oppressors. The early Christian heretic Marcion believed there were two versions of God a God of vengeance, which is found in the Old Testament, and a God of love, which is found in the New Testament and in the person of Jesus. Well, this decidedly New Testament reading from Luke sounds a heck of a lot more like the God of vengeance from the Old Testament. So maybe Marcion was onto something. And it's easy to focus too much, though, on the, on the characters and the action in the parable and miss the bigger point that I think Jesus is trying to make. It's not about what kind of God we have, but about what kind of disciple we are. Specifically, we're being told to pray constantly and not to lose heart. No matter that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left us with the promise that he'd come again. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. We're also told something about the nature of God. It's not that we have a God of vengeance or a God of love, and it's probably both, but that we have a God we can count on. This God, our God is faithful. And it's remarkable how easily we can reach this God through simple acts of praying and believing. Think about it. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, like in today's psalm. We don't have to make animal sacrifices or perform elaborate rituals. We don't even have to be here in church, although that helps. We simply direct our thoughts to God, eyes open or closed, and join in the never-ending conversation with God, our God, is an always-on, 24-7 God. Just a divine phone call away from God. Hey, maybe even a a send-me-a-text God. So what does the parable of the persistent widow tell us about prayer? There's got to be a connection, a link. And I think it's the consistency of our prayer. We are called to pray constantly. Pray without cease, as Paul tells us in Thessalonians. The lesson from the widow to the listeners of Luke and to us is to always be praying. Now you may have noticed that a lot of folks have a fear of praying. Not the Lord's Prayer or the that we hear every Sunday or that we practice in our weekly devotions. Those are already written or memorized and easier to access. Now I'm talking about the bow your heads in a group and pray out loud from no script type of prayer. The pray before eating kind of praying. For any number of reasons, this kind of praying is tough for a lot of people. And I know it was for me. When I did my chaplaincy internship at the hospital after my first year in seminary, I was constantly petrified by the idea of being asked to pray for, aloud for someone, even though that was pretty much my entire job. I'd literally break out in a cold sweat when praying those first few days. I eventually got over it but I understand the fear around praying without a script. You know, maybe it's because when we pray, we're kind of tapping directly into the divine that makes it so nerve wracking. We feel in our souls that God is listening, and that's pretty scary. The Benedictines and also the Franciscans have an interesting idea of praying. They suggest that since all of creation is created by God, literally breathed into being by God and called good, that everything we do, speak, touch, or see can be a kind of prayer. The mop and the bucket are in a way as sacred as the patent and chalice that we'll use at Eucharist. And so in the act of mopping, we have the chance of tapping into the divine. All it requires is mindfulness, being aware. We need to be conscious that we are connecting to the divine at all times. And that mindfulness in turn changes us. And that starts to sound a lot like constant prayer. I was having a conversation with a parishioner earlier this week and we landed on the idea of something as mundane as washing dishes as being a kind of prayer. And when you stop to think about it, washing dishes, and I'm talking about washing dishes by hand, is a kind of sacramental act the flow of water over your hands, the feeling of its warmth, the soap, the materialness of the dishes, the wetness of the towel. Each movement is a chance to bring you into a new relationship with creation, to connect with the divine. And add to it the fact that hand washing dishes has been going on for millennia, and it deepens even further the connection. So much of our lives today would be unrecognizable to our ancestors. But this would be familiar, and that would be a connection. A connection that many of us repeat several times a day, and that's what I think praying constantly might look like. It's always trying to stay connected to that conversation with God, knowing that you're joining with the chorus of people who for millennia have done exactly the same, and knowing our God, a faithful God, is listening. Jesus guides us to think about persevere, uh, think about persevering in prayer in today's reading. But he's also directs us not to lose heart. Don't be discouraged. And this would have been a comfort to the listeners of Luke as they faced persecution and oppression with the outside world. God's chosen people might not have been feeling so chosen. And we all face challenges in our lives. Challenges that can sometimes be so extreme or so long lasting that we feel like losing hope. At those moments, prayer, no matter how persistent or how fervent, may feel futile in the long-delayed return of Jesus Christ. Is God even there? Is God listening? It's a legitimate question for all of us in those dark nights of the soul. Today's Old Testament reading from Genesis can be a reminder of another facet of God in the toughest of times. Keep in mind, Jacob is alone. He's on a foreign land as night falls, and that's the most dangerous time to be at. He sent his family and servants on to, on ahead. He's in fear for his life as his brother Esau makes his way to exact vengeance because Jacob's done him wrong. Jacob is no saint. He, you may remember, tricked his nearly blind father, Isaac, into giving him his older brother's blessing. He convinced the hungry Esau to give up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Like so many other patriarchs in Genesis, Jacob was a flawed man, and now he's all alone. I imagine him lying on the ground, pondering the poor choices he's made, how he wronged his own father and his own brother, and now he's about to be killed because of it. This would be, for him, a truly dark night of the soul. And we're told a man appears, we later later learn it's God, But a man appears and they wrestle until daybreak. Like the widow, Jacob is perseverant. So perseverant that he exacts a blessing from this man, from this God, his perseverance turns that very negative experience, wrestling with God, pondering his past sins, his death, all that, it turns it into a blessing. And in calling Jacob Israel, his new name, God appears to relieve him of his past sins to start out afresh. This is a God who comes to Jacob in the deepest vulnerability, and instead of judging him or of disappearing and leaving him, God enters into the very depths of the struggle. God actually becomes the struggle. Jacob's story is one of a God who is present with us when we have our own challenges. God may even take the very form of the anticipated difficulty. Walter Brueggemann suggests that in the night, the divine antagonist tends to take on the features of others with whom we struggle. Takes on the features of the others with whom we struggle. So in the dark nights of our soul, we may expect to wrestle with God. And when we do this, we persevere. Like the widow. Like Jacob. We stay with God throughout the night wrestling and praying and ranting and crying and persevering we stay with him and we don't lose heart ours is a god of vengeance who brings justice and a god of love who brings joy and a faithful god who's always ready to listen and a god who's with us in the struggle active and engaged present so what do we do we do what jesus tells us We pray constantly, and we don't lose heart. Amen.